All right, the Protestant Reformation, which we should know quite a bit about if we understand uh, the history of the church. One of the things the Protestant Reformation focused upon was the doctrine of justification by faith. And rightly so, because the Romish doctrine was a doctrine of faith mixed with works, that the way to get right with God was to mix your faith with works. And that had permeated much of Christendom. And so the reformers realized we have to get back to justification by faith alone. And John Calvin said that justification is the main hinge on which salvation turns. It's the main hinge, he said, that salvation of sinners turns on this hinge of justification, how we're made right with God. Is it by our works? Is it by what we do? Or is it by trusting in the work of Christ? Martin Luther said, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Justification is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, and the judge over all kinds of doctrines. And justification is essential, foundational, immensely important. But something more than justification is required for sinners. Listen to what George Whitfield said. He said, For Christians would do well to consider that there is not only a legal hindrance to our happiness, as we are breakers of God's law. So we need a legal remedy. That's what justification is about, that our sins could be imputed to Christ and we would be declared righteous in God's eyes. But Whitfield said, but also we need a we also need to consider that there is a moral impurity in our natures which renders us incapable of enjoying heaven till some mighty change have been wrought in us. So it's not enough for us to be declared righteous in God's eyes. In order for us to enjoy heaven, there has to be a change in our nature. We need a new nature, a new heart. And so it is also valid to say that the doctrine of regeneration or the new birth is a hinge on which salvation swings. Whitfield said this, the doctrine of our regeneration or new birth in Christ Jesus, though one of the most fundamental doctrines of our holy religion, though so plainly and often pressed on us in sacred writ, though that he who runs may read it, nay, though, here he says it, it is the very hinge on which the salvation of each of us turns, and a point, too, in which all sincere Christians of every denomination agree, yet it is so seldom considered and so little experimentally understood by the generality of professors, or those who claim to be Christians, that were we to judge the truth of it by the experience of those who call themselves Christians, we should be apt to imagine that they had not so much as heard whether there be any such thing as regeneration or not. So Whitfield is saying, just as justification, in the words of Calvin, was a hinge on which salvation turns, so regeneration is the hinge on which the salvation of each one of us turns. And though many, all Christians would say in theory they agree with it, how many understand it 
and how many have truly experienced it is the question that we need to consider. You see, Woodfield knew that unless you are thoroughly converted, you will never be fit for the kingdom of heaven. Many people say, I'd love to go to heaven, I want to go to heaven, there's going to be happiness and joy and see my loved ones. The problem with people that are outside of Christ is they would hate heaven because God would be there. And in our unregenerate state, we are at enmity with God. And so we would not enjoy heaven unless our nature is changed so that we have a new heart that loves God's law and loves God and wants to spend eternity with him. So we need to consider this morning briefly this idea, biblical idea of conversion. Now, Noah Webster, in 1828, in my favorite dictionary, defined conversion as this. In a theological or moral sense, a change of heart or dispositions in which the enmity of the heart to God and his law and the obstinacy of the will are subdued and are succeeded by or replaced by supreme love to God and his moral government and a reformation of life. Again, Webster's 1828 Dictionary, the greatest dictionary in my mind that was ever created. It's essentially a biblical dictionary in addition to a dictionary for the English language. He said, if you are converted, your heart goes from a state of enmity to God and his law to love for God and his moral government and your life is reformed or changed. So briefly this morning, let's talk about Biblical conversion, biblical conversion, that it's noteworthy in its effects. Three ways the Bible talks about conversion. So we're going to talk about biblical. So we're going to talk about biblical conversion, noteworthy in its effect. We'll look at three ways the Bible talks about conversion, and then we'll look at the dangers of a low view of conversion, and then we'll close with some application. So. Biblical conversion, noteworthy in its, in its effect. I want to look at three passages briefly that talk about or describe conversion and why each of these passages gives us a different look at how noteworthy, how amazing the change is that takes place when someone becomes a Christian, when someone is converted. So first, let's con- con- continue to consider this idea of born again, the new birth. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and in verse number, let me turn there one sec. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, the Apostle Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And of course, we read earlier from John 3. So the first way the Bible describes conversion is as a new birth to be born again. And as we just experienced in our family, a baby is the epitome of new beginnings. Everything's brand new. New appetite, new desires, um, new life. And, And that is what the Bible describes as someone being born again, becoming a Christian. It uses the language of a new birth. And of course, as Nicodemus asked Jesus, it's not a physical birth, it's a spiritual change in the heart. But the imagery of a baby being born and all that is new is what the Bible is pointing at. If you are converted, if you are converted, you have been born again. It is a great change that takes place in your life. The second way the Bible talks about conversion 
is to be brought alive from the dead. Turn to Ephesians, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. So the first way the Bible talks about conversion is as a new birth. A very, very unique experience that leads to radical changes. The second way is to be made alive from the dead. The dramatic reality of conversion is described in terms of a dead person being brought back to life. And verse 1 of chapter 2 describes the state of every lost person on earth, dead in the trespasses and sins in which they once walked. You look around at the world, you see a lot of dead men walking because people are dead in their sins. They are lost apart from Christ. It is a spiritual death. The sinner is not described here as someone who's wounded or injured or merely unconscious, but as someone who is dead, utterly devoid of life, no spirit in them. And of all the miracles that Jesus performed as we read through the Gospels, none were as noteworthy as his bringing back to life those who had died. Those were the most dramatic of his miracles. Because healing a blind man or a leper Though it is a dramatic change and certainly a miracle worthy of praise to God, that's merely touching one part of the man and restoring him back to a state of normalcy that the rest of his body already had. But to raise a dead man to life is to utterly alter the very state of being of that person. It's a change that is unmistakable and undeniable. And that's how the Bible describes being converted. Verse Five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together. So being brought to life from the dead in a spiritual sense is the second way the Bible describes true conversion. The third way the Bible describes con- true conversion is as a new creation or a new creature. So turn to Second Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we read the Apostle Paul says this in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He is a new creation. In Galatians 6, 15, also we read uh, of this language of a new creation. So conversion is described in terms of being created again. And it's hearkening back to when in Genesis chapter one, when God created everything, it was this amazing, wonderful work of creation that God took that which was nothing. God spoke and out of nothing, he created everything. And that's what God does in conversion. He speaks the word of the gospel goes forth and a new creation is made when a man or woman, a boy or girl comes to faith in Christ. It's a dramatic change, dramatic change. Of course, the, there is a story of Augustine. It may not be true that it actually happened with Augustine, but the, the idea behind it and the truth behind it is certainly true. And Spurgeon, at least, had heard this story, and he thought it might have been attributed to Augustine, and he said this. One of the early saints, I think it was Augustine, had indulged in great sins in his younger days. So Augustine was a great wicked sinner before he came to Christ, as we all are. But his sins were very manifest and open. And of course, his mother, Monica, prayed for him earnestly that he would repent. 
And Spurgeon says, after his conversion, he met with a woman who had been the sharer of his wicked follies. She approved, she approached him winningly and said to him, Augustine, but he ran away with her with all speed, ran away from her with all speed. She called after him and said, Augustine, it is I, mentioning her name. But he then turned around and said, but it is not I. The old Augustine is dead and I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. So Augustine here in this story and whether or not he actually said this is debatable. But the truth from Scripture is clear. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. It's a dramatic change that takes place. Now, of course, we could say much more, but for the sake of brevity, we'll move on now to the dangers of a low view of conversion. But set it in your mind that the Bible makes very clear that biblical conversion is noteworthy in its effect. It's dramatic. It's likened to a new birth, to being brought to life from the dead, and to being created again. None of those things are things that lead to minor changes. They're drastic changes. Now, there are many in Christendom who have a very low view of conversion. A very low view of conversion. And I just want to give three dangers to that view very briefly. Number one and I'll be turning to Acts 8 just to make a point here. Number one is that if people have a low view of conversion and do not understand it as the Bible describes it as a dramatic change, changing your very nature from loving sin to loving God's law, then people will not understand what it means to be a Christian, and they may even have a false sense of security and think that they are right with God and on their way to heaven when they are not. And in Acts chapter 8, we read of a man by the name of, let's see if I can find it here, Simon the Magician. Simon the Magician. And this man made an outward profession of faith. And he sees what's going on, he sees the miracles, and he's drawn in to Christianity. He's drawn into the, the religion of Christianity. But he did not have a biblical conversion. And if you read down here in verse 18 of chapter 8, it says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. In the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Now, Simon um, <clears throat> Simon made an outward profession of faith. He, made a, he wanted to come to Christ. He wanted to be a Christian, right? He may even have, have been baptized, and as he was baptized, in verse 13, we read, Even Simon himself believed, and after ba- being baptized, he continued with Philip. So Simon made this profession of faith, and sometimes when the Bible says they believed, it's making reference to the fact that they're mentally assenting to who Christ is, and they're being baptized based on that profession of faith. But as we see later, based on his actions, he was not truly converted, because Paul says you're still 
in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Paul tells him to what? Repent. So if we have a low view of conversion, we're not going to understand what it means to be a Christian. We may make a profession of faith. We may walk an aisle. We may say a prayer. We may even be baptized. But if we don't truly understand what conversion is, we will be likely to have a false understanding of what it means to be a Christian. That's the first danger of a low view of conversion. Number two and um, is that this is about God's glory. And having a low view of conversion fails to give God the glory for his work in conversion. God's work in the new creation is even greater than his work in creating the world in Genesis 1. The fact that he would take a dead, dead sinner who is at enmity with him, who is opposed to him, and change his heart so that he loves God and loves his word and loves Jesus is far greater than taking a shapeless mass the void, and forming it into the world we see around us. Because in conversion, God takes someone who hates him and changes his heart so that he loves him. Of course, the story of the Apostle Paul is a great example of this. Paul was on his way to murder Christians, and God converts him and changes his heart. So if we have a low view of conversion and we don't view it as the Bible does, as this radical change that takes place in someone's heart, then we're not giving God the glory that he deserves for saving people. In their salvation. And number three, if we have a low view of conversion within the professing church, it creates a Romish three-tiered Christianity where the new birth is minimized. So let's talk about that. A couple years ago, I read, I read. I was reading a book from a very, uh, from an author from a very well-known ministry, um, solid doctrinally, um, solid ministry. You know, pretty solid book overall. And in this book, though, the author describes his conversion, and he shared what I call the conversion story that is popular or that is uh, that many have shared. I've heard it many times, and it goes like this: He was converted, quote unquote, at a young age, but yet there was no sanctification. No fruit in his life until many years later. And so this author wrote, he said, he turned from his sin and trusted in Christ at a young age. But he said he remained proud and judgmental, pretty much convinced that everything and everyone else was idiotic. He says he was a jerk who would not heed advice. And he says as he grew older, months and years, during which if someone was genuinely converted... Uh, I would argue they would be growing in holiness and obedience. But he says, as the time went on from that time that he repented and trusted in Christ, he found himself to have less and less interest in Christ's bride or the church and instead expressed his anger in the punk rock music scene. So this is his story of him coming to Christ. And then after that, just no interest in the things of God as he describes it. Now, I've heard that story more than once, and I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but that's not what it means to become a Christian. It's true that salvation is by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. True salvation, true conversion leads to change, immediate change. It's not that we expect maturity on day one, but we are to expect immediate change and more importantly, growth. The way this author described his conversion 
does not sound like the conversion of a sinner that is described in the Bible. It doesn't sound like what we've just read about. A change of heart that results in humility and a tender conscience and a growing love for Christ's bride. Now, what's most concerning to me about this book is, I mean, one, that it's from a well-known ministry, that it's kind of spreading this idea of a low view of conversion. But in the book, the, con- the real conversion story never comes. The, late, the experience that he had as a young person is never explained as a false conversion. A later, genuine coming to Christ is not mentioned. The reader is left to assume that conversion is about some religious experience that occurs in the spiritual realm. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe some, some prayer you say or something you experience internally. But based on that story, you're left to assume that it doesn't impact the day-to-day. It doesn't necessarily result in a change or holy living or holy thinking. He says in his book he turned from his sin, but my question is what sin did he turn from? Apparently not the sins that still characterize him for years before he ostensibly started loving Christ's bride, because I believe that that happened. Obviously, he's writing this book now about Christian doctrine. He, He loves Christ, but what happened in that time in between? This view of conversion separates salvation from daily living. It is demonstrative of a general aversion to application of doctrine and biblical principles to life. And sadly, it promotes a disconnect between salvation and practical day-to-day living. It, prevents con- it, it presents conversion in a shallow, insipid manner, as if it wouldn't really radically change someone. Now, can a man be converted, can a woman, can a child be converted to Christ and yet experience no radical change in their lives? Can you be born again and not have a new nature that loves the things of God and hates sin? The thoughtful student of Scripture cannot answer these questions in the affirmative. It is impossible. When understood in the context of turning to the Lord, conversion is a turning from sin which is transgression of God's law, and a turning to holiness, which is conformity to God's law. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Conversion is the first exercise of the new nature in ceasing from old forms of life and starting a new life. It is the first action of the regenerate soul in moving from something to something. It is the first thing that happens. You don't come to faith in Christ and then years later become converted and turn from your sin. Charles Spurgeon put it like this, Regeneration and conversion, the one the secret cause and the other the first overt effect, produce a great change in the character. This agrees with biblical testimony we've looked at. In other words, regeneration, God changes you, brings you to life, and the conversion is that change that is brought about in your life. Now, false teaching concerning this doctrine has been around for centuries. One erroneous teaching, as I mentioned, is that there are three tiers or classes of Christians. J.C. Ryle wrote about this years ago. He said, It is well known that Romish writers often maintain that the church is divided into three classes. You have sinners, penitents, and then saints. The modern teachers of this day, and he was writing in the uh, 19th century, The the modern teachers of this day who tell us that professing Christians are of three sorts, the unconverted, the converted, 
and then the partakers of the holy life of complete consecration appear to me to occupy very much the same ground. So we're presenting this three tiers. You have the lost. We have people that are saved. Yeah, they've made a profession of faith. They believe, quote unquote, in Jesus. But then the other tier is people who've actually been, you know, are living for Christ and walking in holiness. Now, it's true that when someone's saved, they do not become completely holy in practice. It's equally true that no believer, no matter how mature, will be completely free of sin until glory. But it does not follow that regeneration then can result in someone that is not radically changed. To assert that a new believer can consistently live in a manner contrary to God's clear directives is against the biblical testimony. There's no teaching in Scripture that would affirm that. On the contrary, read in 1 John 2, if, we, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So when I hear a conversion story along the lines of the one I mentioned from that author, I usually wonder, and will sometimes ask, don't you think that the point when you started to take Christ seriously, as they'll sometimes say, is more likely the general time period when God converted you. If your conversion didn't result in obedience to Christ, it was not really conversion. And Ryle warned of this. What some people today refer to taking Christ more seriously. Oh yeah, I was saved when I was in college, but then I didn't take Christ seriously until 10 years later. In Ryle's day, that was referred to as consecration. People would say, yeah, I was saved, I believe in Jesus, but I wasn't consecrated to God until at a later time. And Ryle says that's a false teaching. It's wrong. And listen here as we wrap up. Ryle said this. Sudden, instantaneous leaps from conversion to consecration I fail to see in the Bible. I doubt indeed whether we have any warrant for saying that a man can possibly be converted without being consecrated to God. More consecrated he doubtless can be and will be as his grace increases. But if he was not consecrated to God, and again, that language is being set apart to be holy, to hate sin, to love God's law. If he was not consecrated to God in the very day that he was converted and born again, I do not know what conversion means. It's meaningless. He says, are not men in danger of undervaluing and underrating the immense blessedness of conversion? Are they not when they urge on believers the higher life as a second conversion, are they not underrating the length and breadth and depth and height of that first great change, which scripture calls the new birth, the new creation, the spiritual resurrection? I may be mistaken, he says, but I have sometimes thought while reading the strong language used by many about consecration in the last few years, that those who use it, that those who speak in that way, must have previously had a singularly low and inadequate view of conversion, if indeed they knew anything about conversion at all. In short, I have almost suspected that when they were consecrated, they were in reality converted for the first time. You see, and as I've heard stories like the one I read in that book and speaking with others, I too have thought that those who speak in such a way must have had a previously low and inadequate view of conversion. If they could say, yeah, I believed in Jesus in the past, but 
nothing changed in my life until five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later. They have no understanding of what conversion is. I too have suspected that when they started actually to take Christ seriously, that is when they were first converted. You can only be converted once, and when you are converted, the change is undeniable. As disciples of Christ and students of the Word, Christians must seek to talk about their salvation and conversion correctly. So, as we move to application, number one, if you are a believer in Christ, talk about your conversion biblically. You don't need to know the exact moment you were converted, but it will result in a drastic change in your life. And so, consider your testimony, look to Scripture, and see if it lines up with Scripture. Does the way you talk about your salvation line up with Scripture? Or do you say something, well, I was saved, but I had no love for Jesus and the Word and the church until years later? Number two, make sure you are converted. Make sure you are converted. Here are briefly a couple things biblically, and of course we could spend a lot more time on this, but I won't right now. Number one, if you are converted, you will have an awareness of sin an awareness that you are a sinner in need of salvation, in great need of salvation. And you'll be aware of the remedy. The only remedy for that sin is Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead. Number two, another way to consider your life and see if you've been converted is, has there been a great change in direction regarding your relationship to God's law? We read earlier from Jeremiah that one of the blessings of the new covenant, the new birth, is that God will write his law on your heart. So if you are converted, you will love God's law and you will desire to walk in it. So meditate on the Ten Commandments. Has your life changed in the way you think about God? Has your life changed in the way you speak about God? Has your life changed in the way you view the Lord's Day? Has your life changed in how you view um, speaking truth of your neighbor? Has your life changed regarding covetousness or lust or greed or pride? Has your life and your view of those things changed? Consider God's law, because if you are converted, it will be written on your heart and you have a great love for it. And number three, do you love Jesus above all things? We, if we are in Christ, have been given a love for Jesus, and we love him because he first loved us. So, let us consider the biblical doctrine of conversion. Let us remind ourselves by looking to Scripture that it is a great change akin to being born again, to being brought to life from the dead, and to being created anew. It is not a minor change that takes place. It is a drastic change that takes place. place. And I've shared it before, but I heard this first from Paul Washer. And I'll close with this illustration that he gave. Paul Washer tells a story. I'll just tell it as he did. Of course, I'll be paraphrasing. Imagine that I had ran out to go get something. I had to run to the store. um, And I was coming home. And I'm a little late than I expected. And I come in and you ask me, you know, what, what took you so long? Why? We were expecting you a half hour ago. You're late. Uh, You know, you need to bring this thing, so on and so forth. And I say to you, well, I understand. I'm sorry I was late. I was um, at the store, and I had to park across the street. And so after I, I bought what I needed to buy, I was coming out of the store, and as I was crossing the street, 
I got hit by a tractor trailer. So, you know, that's why I'm late. I'm sorry I'm late, but I got hit by the tractor trailer. Now, what would you think? You would think that I'm, I'm insane. I'm crazy, right? How could I come into contact with something as powerful, as big, with as much force as a tractor trailer and not be changed and stand here before you just like I was before? You would think I'm insane. But how is it then that we can claim to come in contact with God himself, the thrice holy one, and yet not be changed? And that is how we, we, that's the story we tell if we talk about conversion as if it didn't change us. We're saying we came in contact with the God of the universe and we weren't changed. That's not biblical conversion. So let's ponder these truths. Let's, pon- let's examine our own hearts and let's teach, even as we share a testimony, the true doctrine of conversion. The new birth is... As Whitfield said, and I agree, it is the hinge on which our salvation turns. And the preaching of this doctrine, I believe, led to great revival and reformation. Because when Whitfield came and preached, there was already a general understanding of Christianity, a general understanding of even justification by faith. But the people didn't understand that they needed to be converted by the Holy Spirit. And that is what we certainly need in our day. So let us pray that God would be pleased to bless Uh, this land and the world with another reformation that the true doctrine of conversion of regeneration would be preached. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for biblical conversion. Thank you that you are in the business of changing people. You radically change people. Whether we have had a past life of great outward sin or whether our sins have been hidden in secret, all of us, apart from Christ, need to be radically changed. And just as we cannot come into contact with anything on earth, of, of such size and magnitude and not be changed. If we come in contact with you, God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will be changed. And we pray that we would continue to grow and that those who do not have faith in Christ would repent and trust in him and believe unto the everlasting life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.